I wanted to just build today on what Ian was sharing about last week. Um, Ian was talking about keeping the main thing the main thing. And he looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, the chapter that we love to read at weddings. Um, and so I just want to build on that today. And I want to use a passage or look at a passage um, from Luke chapter 10. Um, so let's just read this passage and then we'll get into it. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. So let's read. It says, On one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So here we have a pretty detailed record of a conversation that the Lord Jesus had. So this expert of the law comes to the Lord Jesus and he asks him a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I think that's a question that every single one of us should be asking if we're not already asking it or haven't asked it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we see that he didn't ask this question because he was seeking the truth. He wasn't really looking for the answer to that question. What he was actually looking for was to trap Jesus in his words. He was saying it to test him. He wanted Jesus to, to stumble in something that he said so that they could find room or grounds to accuse him. The Lord Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, didn't answer the question. What he did is he actually asked him a question. You know, that's a very good way to deal with people that are trying to trip you up. Just ask them the question, get them to answer the question that they're asking. And so that's what the Lord does. He says, well, what does the law say? You're the expert in the law. You're the theologian. You're the scholar. What does the law say? You tell me what, how you read it, how you understand it. And so this man was quite happy to give an answer, and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, and from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, and he says, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord approved his answer. This man actually got the answer right, which tells us something, that this man was, he had a correct understanding of what God's law was all about. Maybe he had been listening to Jesus at some other time and he had come to understand that. But he understood what was required for him to have eternal life. He wasn't in the dark. And the Lord Jesus said to him, well, go and do this and you will live. Was the Lord lying to him? No, he wasn't. The Lord was telling him the truth. He was telling him exactly what he needed to do in order to have eternal life. If he was going to have eternal life according to the law, that's what he needed to do. He needed to love the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. And he needed to love his neighbor as himself. And the Lord said, if you'll do that, you will live. You will live eternally. You will have eternal life. Now, the conversation could have ended there. It could have been the end. That man could have walked away and he could have gone out to do exactly what he needed to do in order to have eternal life. But it didn't end there. This man now asks another question. He asked the first question to test Jesus, but it says that the second question that he asked was to justify himself. And I sort of asked the question, I wonder why this man needed or felt that he had a need to justify himself when the Lord told him, Go and do this. Go and do what you've just answered, what you've just said, and you'll live. Why did he have this sense, this feeling of a need to justify himself? Well, I believe it's this. In, in the Lord's saying, go and do this and you'll live, he was implying to this man that he wasn't doing it. And I think the man didn't like that because he probably felt very self-righteous probably felt like he was, you know, he was this upstanding, righteous man in the Jewish community. And he was doing everything he needed to obtain eternal life. And so when the Lord spoke to him as if he wasn't doing it, he took offense. And so he asked this question, who is my neighbor? What did the Bible say? What does the scriptures say? Love your neighbor as yourself. So he wanted to now define who his neighbor was. Who is it that he should love? And you know that this question had been a, a matter of debate amongst the Jews. And it had really been narrowed down to their neighbor just being Jews who were devout. Jews who were a part of their sect. That, that's who their neighbor was. Those are the people that they should love. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount... The Lord Jesus said this, he said, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. I wonder who said that. Who was it that said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy? It was people just like this expert in the law. It was the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. They were the ones that were telling the people, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Which tells us immediately that they did not include their enemy in being their neighbor. And so what had happened is, over time, this 
this word neighbor had been defined by people. As they looked at the scriptures, as they looked at the law, and they realized that they needed to love their neighbor, they began to define what their neighbor was, who their neighbor was. And they had defined their neighbor in a way that was comfortable for them. Comfortable for them to fulfill. And if you remember, the Lord also said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than what the pagans do? Everyone does that. That's a, a natural human thing, to love those who love you and to greet and, and honor people that are in your own blood, your own kith and kin, your own people. And so that is how the, the scribes and the experts in the law had defined their neighbor. Do you know that we often do this as well, even as Christians? We look at Scripture, and we see what Scripture says, and we, we want to bring a definition out. We want to define what it's saying in a way that is comfortable for us. It's a natural human thing for us to do that. When we, we hear God saying something to us, and we receive it and accept that it is a command of God, how easy it is for us then to begin to define that command and what it actually means in a way that will make it comfortable and easier for us to fulfill. And this is exactly what the Jews had done with this particular command. And so what does the Lord do? To define, to help this man define who his neighbor was, he tells him this parable. And in this parable we see four characters. A man, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Now, if you notice in the parable, Jesus didn't say anything. He didn't give us any details about who this man was that fell into the hands of the robbers. He just says a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a walk of about 25 kilometers through some very rugged terrain going steeply down. It's like going down an escarpment. And it was a place where bandits would often wait and ambush to ambush people that were coming down that road. And this is what happened to this man. But the Lord didn't tell us who he was, didn't tell us anything about his ethnicity or who, you know, what nation he came from or what his occupation was or anything like that. Didn't tell us what his religion was. And I wonder why the Lord didn't do that. Why didn't he tell us anything about this man? And I, I believe the answer is this. He wanted us just to focus in on the fact that this man was a man. He was a human being. What, who he was, what his social status was, what his religion was, what his occupation was, was irrelevant to this story, to the point that Jesus was trying to make. It was just that he was a man. He was a human being. And then he, he talks about these other three characters, the, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Why did he use these three characters? Well, let's have a look at it. The priest and the Levite were the religious leaders of the Jews. So they were just like this export, expert in the law. They had the law. They knew it. They understood it. They had God's word. They were teachers of God's word to the people. And they were the ones in that Jewish society considered to be righteous, God's servants. And so the Lord uses this priest and this Levite in this parable. The Samaritan, on the other, on the other hand, 
He was looked down upon. All the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. They were considered to be corrupt half-breeds, ignorant of the law, people who didn't know God, who didn't have a relationship with God. They were, they were considered to be reprobate. So to the Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. That's why the, the, the very name of this parable, it's called the, par the parable of the good Samaritan, would be a paradox in Jewish thinking. How can there be a good Samaritan? To the Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. And the Jews had no dealings with Samaritan. There was great enmity between Jews and Samaritans. And this is how this expert in the law would have viewed the Samaritan. And so the Lord uses the Samaritan because he's trying to make a point here. Out of these three people, who was a neighbor to this unfortunate man who fell into the hands of these criminals? It was the Samaritan. Who loved that man as he loved himself? Who out of these three fulfilled God's command to love his neighbor as he loved himself? Out of these three people, who did what the law required? And what Jesus had said you need to do if you want to have eternal life. It was the Samaritan. It was the man who didn't have the law. The man who didn't apparently know God. Who apparently didn't have a relationship with God. And the men who were considered the pillars of society and the teachers and the righteous ones. When they saw the man lying on the side of the road, half dead, it says, the Lord says they went to the other side. They didn't want to have any contact with him, any association with him. We don't know the reasons why they did that. Maybe they were busy. Maybe they had some agenda that they were trying to fulfill. Maybe they just didn't have any compassion or care. They didn't want to be put out. And so the Lord shows these two people who are considered to be these highly religious people, and yet they were not fulfilling God's command. And here's this man who's considered to be non-religious, deceived, corrupt, and yet here he is doing what the law requires. After, the, after this had happened, Jesus then says to the, to the expert in the law, when he says to the, law, to the man, who, who was it? Who fulfilled the law? Who was a neighbor to this man? And even the expert in the law had to admit that it was the Samaritan, not the priest, and not the Levite. And so Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Once again, he said the same thing he had said before, go and do likewise. And the conversation or the record of the conversation ends there. Now, I want to just have a look and ask ourselves, what can we learn from this? I believe we can learn five things, and I just want to bring these out to you. The first one is, we can learn how God defines a neighbor. You know, when we hear love our neighbor as ourselves, we might just be thinking of somebody who lives next door to us. I mean, they are our neighbor, aren't they? But you know, in God's definition, it's far broader than that. Our neighbor is any person we encounter during our daily lives. It is the people that we meet on the roads, even if we're in a car, we encounter them on the roads. People that we meet in the supermarkets, in the business place, when we're on holiday, while we're traveling. 
it's regard, it doesn't matter whether we know them or not. That's not what determines who our neighbor is. This Samaritan did not know that man who was beaten and lying half dead. He'd never met him before. He didn't live in his vicinity. He lived in Jerusalem probably, whereas the Samaritan lived in Samaria. So there was nothing really that they even had in common. Yet, by the virtue of the fact that that, Samar that Samaritan came upon that man, he became a neighbor. They were neighbors. And so a neighbor is anyone that we meet and encounter during our daily lives, no matter who they are, regardless of their ethnicity, their social class, their religion, their age, their gender, or who they are. That's, that is totally irrelevant to defining who our neighbor is. Any person that we meet during our daily life, God considers to be our neighbor. So what does loving our neighbor look like? This is the second thing we can learn. What loving our neighbor as ourselves looks like. Loving our neighbor as ourselves is doing to others as we would have them do to us. That's exactly what the Samaritan did. If it had been the Samaritan who was robbed and left half dead, what would he have wanted? Would he have wanted someone just to walk past him? Would he have wanted someone just to say, get better and leave him? No, he would have wanted somebody to do for him what, exactly what he did for that man. And so when that Samaritan went over and took that man and put him on his, his animal and uh, put oil and water and bandaged his wounds and took him to a place where he could be... Um, you know, he could, he could recover and could be looked after and covered all his expenses. The Samaritan was doing for that man exactly what he would have wanted someone to do for him if he was in the same position. The priests and the Levites, they didn't. Is that what they would have wanted? Is that how they would have wanted someone to treat them had the, the roles been reversed? You see, loving our neighbor as ourselves is doing to others what we would have them do to us. So that means we've got to constantly ask this question. If I was in their situation, what would I want them to do for me? What would I seek? Difficult question, isn't it? Loving our neighbor as ourselves is being merciful to those that we come into contact with that are in need. And it's doing all that we can to alleviate their plight. That's loving our neighbor as ourselves. And you know what the third thing we learn from this? I think it's up there. We learn just how far short we all fall of doing this. I don't know whether I'm the only one. But I think I can confidently say that if we were to be honest, every single one of us has fallen short of this. And continues to fall short of this. And that tells us something. We're all sinners. If this is what God requires for people to inherit eternal life. And we don't do it. What do we deserve? We don't deserve eternal life. Every single one of us. The Bible says when we stand before God, we stand before Him falling short of His glory. Simply because we have failed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we failed to love our neighbor 
as ourselves. That's the reality of the situation. None of us can stand before God and boast about our goodness. Even the best of us, the people that we would say are good people, have fallen short of this command. Every single one of us. I stand before you absolutely, totally guilty. That's the truth. We've all fallen short. There is only one who has ever done what is required for eternal life. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only man that has ever lived out of all the people from the beginning of creation till this present time that has fulfilled and kept God's requirements. These two laws, these two commands, perfectly. He's the only one. And so when we look at the life of the Lord Jesus, we actually see what he was teaching in this parable exemplified in his life. His life is a living illustration of what it means to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you want to see a living example of that being fulfilled, you just have to look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. What the Samaritan did in this parable, Jesus did in his life. Think about his life. What was his life all about? It was about love and mercy. Acts 10.38 says he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil. That was his life. That was his mission. That was his ambition. That was his goal. That's what he thought about. That's what he dreamt about. Everything in his life was about serving and helping people. But it didn't end there. His love and his mercy... He took it to the extreme, to the very limits, to the very end where it could go no further. In his mercy, he gave everything that he had to give in the service of people. He laid down his life for us all. He gave it all. If he had given all his money, he would have still had something to give. He would have still had his life to give. But he went so far, he went beyond just giving money. He gave himself to the very full. He gave himself. He knew that we, like that robbed man, could not save ourselves. Just like that man left half dead could not save himself. Jesus knew we could not save ourselves. And so he came and rescued us and he bound up our wounds and he poured in the oil and the wine and he covered all the costs of our salvation for us. Everything that the Lord said in this parable, the Samaritan did, the Lord Jesus did. Did he do it to us because we deserved it? Were we holy and righteous? The Bible says no, we were, we were sinners and it goes even as far as to say he did this for us while we were his enemies. That's the love of God. That's the love of Jesus Christ. And why did he do it? Because he loved his father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. And he loved us as he loved himself. He perfectly fulfilled God's righteous law. And he did it so we could be saved. He did it so we 
who have failed to keep God's righteous law might be justified, might stand before a holy God and be accepted by Him. The next thing we learn is that Jesus wants us to have the same kind of heart He has. His heart. He wants us to love like the Samaritan did. He told the expert of the law twice, go and do this. Go and do this. In John chapter 13 and verse 34 to 35, we read this. And this is on the night of his betrayal. Just before he goes to the cross and gives his life for us, he says, a new command I give you. Not a suggestion, a command. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. This is where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? This is God's will for our lives. He then says in verse 35, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the sign. This is the sign that we truly have faith in Christ and are following Christ. This is the sign. 1 John chapter 3 verse 18 and 19 says this, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This, listen to this now, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. How can we know we belong to the truth? What is the evidence? How do we treat each other? How do we treat people? This is what God looks at. You see, just because we're religious doesn't mean that we're following Christ. Just because we come to church on a Sunday doesn't necessarily mean that we're actually following Christ. This expert in the law was very religious. The priest and the Levite were very religious. The most religious. They knew the truth. They had the right answers. But did they have the love of God in their hearts? Look at Micah chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Look at this. To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? Well, it means to acknowledge before Him that you're a sinner, that you've not done what you ought to have done, that you've done things you ought not to have done, that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, that you're totally dependent upon Him and His mercy and His grace for salvation. It's to live our lives in the light of that truth. 
with that kind of an attitude where there is no boast, no boast in our hearts. It means to remember when others are not loving to you, to us, to remember the times we have not been loving to others, ourselves, and to forgive them just as we would have God forgive us, rather than holding that grudge against them, to release them just as we want God to release us. What does it mean to act justly? It means to do no injury to another, but to do what is right to all, to render to all their due. It covers the way employers treat their employees. Is it just? The way employees treat your employer. Is it just? Are you rendering to him the work that you agreed to render to him, that you're getting paid for? Are you being just in your dealings? This is what God looks for. This is the important things. These are the matters that really concern God. The way we treat people in general. How do we treat that teller? How do we treat that waiter in the coffee shop? How do we treat people maybe that don't quite meet up to our expectations? Don't quite do what we want them to do? How do we treat our family members? These are the things that God looks at. What does it mean to love mercy? Well, mercy speaks of helping people who are in desperate need, that genuinely cannot help themselves. And to love mercy is to love doing that. I wonder if I ask myself this. I wonder if I love mercy. Do I love showing mercy to people? And you know what I've come to realize? This is a constant struggle in our lives. Because our human nature is in complete opposition to this. The flesh, what we call the flesh, is in complete opposition to this. You know, we need to be careful that we're not like that expert of the law, that priest, that Levite. That we're not like the Jews that God rebuked in Isaiah 58. These Jews, the Bible says in Isaiah 58, they fasted, they prayed, they, day after day they sought out God, they seemed eager to know His ways, they seemed eager for God to come near them, and yet, while they were doing that, they were mistreating their workers, they were mistreating each other, they didn't care for the helpless, the suffering people that were around them, those who had no clothes, no shelter, no food. And you know what God called them? He called them rebels. Very religious people coming to church every Sunday, praying in the prayer room, reading their Bibles, yet forsaking to love, forsaking to show mercy, forsaking to act justly. And God calls them rebels. It's so easy for us to fall into this trap. And I'm talking to myself. And even as I've been preparing this message, I've been convicted in my own heart. And I've had to say, Lord, here I am. I stand before your people and I teach them. I preach your word. I know what it says. But am I doing what it says? Am I actually living this kind of a life? 
And I had to examine my heart and say, I fall short. I fall short so many times, more times probably than not. I fall short. And I think if each of us are honest, we probably would have to say the same thing. And so when we look at the Lord's words here, what a challenge it gives to each and every single one of us. And so as we come into this new year, I just think what Ian was saying last week, keeping the main thing the main thing, this is exactly what it is. This is the main thing. This is what God's concerned about. He's concerned about how we treat people. And what Ian read last week, I just want to remind you very quickly. 1 Corinthians 13, he goes through all the gifts. If we speak in tongues of men and angels, but we do not have love, what are we? If we have faith that can move mountains, but we do not have love, what are we? If we can prophesy and we know all mysteries and have all knowledge, yet we do not have love, what are we? We're nothing. We gain nothing. You see, the main thing in God's mind and God's heart is how we relate one to another and how we relate to people every single day of our lives. And so I just want to leave this challenge with you today. And I want to pray for all of us today. Because maybe you're feeling just as convicted as I am. So let's just stand to our feet and let's just pray. And let's just ask the Lord to help us. Because one thing I've come to realize is that we can only do what God requires of us with His help. In our own strength, we will fail. And I'm so aware of that in my life. We can make all the New Year's resolutions, but there's things that God requires of us that we will never be able to fulfill, no matter how resolved we are, unless we are seeking His face and asking Him to help us. It is His work in our hearts that takes us from being selfish to being selfless. It's the work of God. Nothing else can change a man's heart from being essentially selfish in our very core, in our very nature, in our very perception of life, to being someone who is selfless. Only the Spirit of God, only God by His Spirit can do this. The Lord Jesus died so we could be completely transformed. And this is what God wants to do in our hearts. So let's, as we're standing, just lift your hands, lift them towards heaven, and let's just pray and ask the Lord. We lift our hands because we're like children. We're reaching out to Him and saying, Lord, we need your help. Father, we come before you today. And we acknowledge before you, Father, that we have all failed. We have all fallen short. Lord, so how, how often, so often, Lord, we are motivated, moved simply by selfishness. Considering only ourselves, loving only ourselves, thinking only about ourselves, taking only our own interests to heart. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us, Lord. And we come before you today acknowledging our complete and total disability to be able to love this way. We know we can only love this way by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts. And so we ask you to help us. We ask for your grace as we go into this year. 
We ask, Lord, that we might go into it with a changed attitude, a changed heart, a heart that is full of your love. So, Lord, we cry out to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.